0: Hello and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1919, the 23rd year of the VFL, and for the first time since 1915, there would be nine teams competing as Melbourne returned to the competition. 1919 saw the world resetting itself after the end of World War One. In June, the Treaty of Versailles was signed, formalising the end of the war and setting the stage for peace and prosperity for all countries for the rest of the 20th century. Sadly, not. In December, the Great Australian Air Race saw the first flight from England to Australia. The Australian Government had sponsored the race to encourage aviation and help connect Australia to the rest of the world. There was a £10,000 prize for the first airman to fly a British-built plane from London to Darwin, Within 30 days, a trip that can be now done in less than 30 hours. And the prize would have got people's interest. £10,000 in 1919 would be the equivalent to about $800,000 in today's money. Brothers Ross and Keith Smith and their crew won the competition in 27 days and 20 hours. As the world returned to a new normal after the war, and as workers campaigned for a shorter working week, there was some concern about how men would use their increased leisure hours. No mention in the Argus article in May about women's leisure hours, but fears that men were wasting time on games, amusements and gambling. As leisure hours increased, it was essential for the men's health and the state of the community that men take up wholesome hobbies to utilise their leisure time effectively. Perhaps some men thought watching footy was good enough for a hobby. Meanwhile, many, many thousands of Australians were coming home from service and joining them was the dreaded Spanish flu. A series of orders were made by the Victorian Government that now sound very familiar given our experiences with COVID-19. On the 30th of January 1919, it was announced that public meetings of more than 20 people Were prohibited. Travel on long-distance train trips was restricted. Public buildings were closed and New South Wales shut the border with Victoria. People were encouraged to wear masks and a strict quarantine system was introduced for ships arriving in Australian ports. The Spanish flu was unlike other flus because it attacked healthy young adults rather than the elderly or infants. By mid-April There were over 3,400 cases treated in hospital with 142 deaths. Just as with COVID, front-line health staff were also at risk, with many nurses falling ill and some dying. Between February and August 1919, the Victorian State Government turned the Royal Exhibition Buildings into a flu hospital. But with many doctors and nurses yet to return from overseas service, and with medical staff falling ill, there was a shortage of staff across the state to care for patients. Before the crisis was over, 34 additional emergency hospitals were created in addition to the existing hospital system. By the end of 1919, at least 12,500 Australians, about 30% of them from Victoria, would die from the Spanish flu. Hugh Bugsy, reporting for the Argus, noted that most VFL teams were hit hard by the infection, which whittled away the strength of most of them and caused sudden reversals of form. Maybe one of the factors for some of the upset results seen during this season. No VFL player playing in 1919 died from the Spanish flu, but many did become ill. Roy Cazaley was one example, missing several games for the Saints early in the season. Browsing the match reports in the newspapers reveals many examples of players missing games due to the influenza, as well as struggling to regain form when returning to the game after illness. But several ex-players and some administrators did succumb to the flu. Doug Fraser, who was suspended for five years for his part in the infamous Carlton bribery scandal of 1909, died in February, aged just 32. Just before the season started, Frank Hyatt, Carlton's Vice President, League Delegate and Secretary of the Victorian Railways Union, died, aged just 37. He left a wife and three children. Just a couple of examples of the many, many losses across the community. There does not seem to have been any specific actions taken by the VFL to address Spanish flu. With Melbourne returning to the competition, there were even more games being played each Saturday, with no crowd restrictions. The health authorities believed that outdoor events did not create transmission risk, but player transfers from interstate were impacted by travel restrictions. Richmond's historian, Rhett Bartlett, tells of the star Western Australian recruit, Norm McIntosh, he could not get to Victoria in time to live in Richmond for 12 weeks to be eligible to play. He would have to wait until season 1920 to join the club. Focusing on the footy now, January saw the proposal for each club to have a junior team that would play as its own competition. This is effectively the start of the VFL reserves, but Geelong did not field a team. At the League AGM at the end of March, the donations to the Patriotic Funds were tallied for the previous year at £3,355 which brought the total since the start of the war to over £9,400, or the equivalent of about $766,000 in today's money. Jong's forced experiment in 1918 with red socks was at an end for season 1919. The team had gone with the new colour socks due to a shortage of blue wool, rather than for a desire for a new image. But with the return of Melbourne, who had a prior claim on the red socks, and an abundance of blue wool, 1919 would see Geelong back in their traditional blue socks. The season opened on Saturday the 3rd of May, with Geelong having the bye. The previews in the various newspapers were hoping that the game would return to the standard of pre-war days. Public interest in terms of membership ticket sales was encouraging. Many clubs had former players returning from military duty to warm welcomes while there was undoubtedly much sadness for those who would never return to play. The opening round saw a return of crowds that recalled the pre-war era. Club membership tickets were in high demand, and several clubs were in the happy situation of running out of membership cards, and resorted to taking payment with handwritten receipts and a firm promise to dispatch the new cards during the week. The game of most interest was the grand final replay with South Melbourne hosting Collingwood. South unfurled their premiership flag but Collingwood had the better of the day, winning by two goals. Carlton were too good for Fitzroy, Richmond beat Essendon and St Kilda started their season with a win as expected given they were playing Melbourne and it was their first game for four years. Round two saw some upsets when St Kilda managed to get their first win over Collingwood at Victoria Park in 27 attempts since the start of the VFL in 1897. Despite leading all day, the Saints nearly blew it, allowing Collingwood to score four goals in the last quarter. If the Magpies Gus Dobras shot from the boundary line after the bell had gone through, it would have been a Collingwood win yet again. St Kilda had an even bigger game in Round 5 when they travelled down to Geelong, and kicked six goals, ten behinds at the Corio Oval, holding Geelong goalless for the entire game. Geelong somehow managed to kick 18 behinds, but not a single goal for the entire match. By round seven, the competition was proving very even. Only one win separating the top six teams. Melbourne, understandably, were struggling at the bottom of the ladder as they rebuilt their team, and South Melbourne were on top, having only lost their opening game against Collingwood. Round 8 provided one of the blockbuster games of the season. Carlton were the other leading team of the competition, also just dropping one game, a surprise defeat by Essendon in the second round of the season. The Blues and South met at the Lakeside Oval, where a close-fought game saw South keep top spot by defeating Carlton by one goal. However, that seems to have broken the spell for the Blues, who then lost their next three games as well. In 1918, South Melbourne had only lost one game all season as they went on to win the Premiership, and that loss was on a Monday of a long weekend, when the team had basically been on a bender up in the Dandenongs at the invitation of one of their supporters. Round 12, 1919, saw the Southerners take some sort of revenge for that blemish, that cost them the opportunity to be the first and only team to complete a season undefeated. They hosted St Kilda at the Lakeside Oval and set a number of long-standing records as they demolished a team that had been having a reasonable season. The final score was 29 goals 15, 189 to 2 goals 6 behinds 18 points. It was the highest score for a VFL team to date. This included 17 goals in the last quarter, which was also a record. And Harold Robinson, at full forward, scored 14 goals off his own boot, setting another record. However, it should be noted that in the last quarter, the Saints had three men off the field injured. In the second last round, Carlton had given themselves a strong chance of ending up in the final four in their game against top place South Melbourne. Despite trailing the favourites for most of the game, they had a come-from-behind victory in the last quarter to win by four points. But the Blues still had a challenge in front of them in the vital last round. The permutations and possibilities were analysed in depth in the lead-up to the final round. It was a cold, wet Saturday afternoon to end the season, and skills such as high marking and running were put away as players generally just try to push the ball forward by whatever means possible. Fitzroy led Collingwood for most of the game, giving their supporters hopes for a finals appearance. But three goals to the Magpies in the last quarter saw the Maroons tumble out of the four. Their only hope was for Richmond to beat Carlton. But the Blues also had a strong quarter and came from behind to beat Richmond, pushing the Yellow and Blacks to fourth eliminating Fitzroy from any further action. Collingwood waited anxiously for word from Geelong. They were behind South on percentage, but when they heard the news that Geelong had won their third game for the season, defeating top play South, the Magpies celebrated by taking top spot, relegating South to second, and most of all, the Magpies had the cherished right of challenge in the final series. Sadly for Melbourne, they did not trouble Essendon and their first season back to the VFL ended without a single win for the developing team. The Richmond change rooms was a tense place after the game against Carlton. Not knowing that Fitzroy had lost, they believed their season was over and emotions boiled over. Accusations were thrown around that a player had been paid off by bookmakers to play dead and one player declared he would never play again with a certain man who had not played as well as he usually did. But by Thursday, after a conversation between the players and the committee, all was peaceful again, and the team was ready for their first semi-final against South Melbourne. South were struggling, though. Their full forward, Harold Robinson, who had kicked 14 goals against the Saints earlier in the season, was injured, and veteran big man Vic Belcher was also out-injured. Their rover, Jack Doherty, was under a cloud after being knocked out in the game against Geelong, but would play. No concussion protocols in these early days. Jack Elder was appointed to umpire the first semi-final. The Herald had expanded their coverage in the Friday night edition by getting quotes from the two competing captains, as well as predictions from several other club captains. The ever-expanding media coverage of football was well underway, even in 1919. Richmond's captain, Percy Mabry, predicted the wide-open wings of the MCG would suit the Yellow and Blacks. But South Melbourne's captain, Jim Caldwell, was also confident, stating, I cannot see the Richmond men beating us. The game was played in front of 55,000 spectators, continuing the season's trend for large attendances and setting a record for a semi-final. Richmond were the crowd favourite as they took on the reigning premiers. It was their first real final series, not counting the unusual 1916 season, and South had been successful for a number of years, so neutral supporters were with the Yellow and Blacks today. It was a close game, but Richmond seemed to be playing better at three-quarter time, The gap was 13 points in favour of Richmond, but South were the more experienced finalists and many thought that they would come home in a rush. But it was Richmond that scored the first two goals, establishing a four-goal break that gave them the confidence that the game was theirs. Even when wingman Robert Carew was carried off with a broken ankle, they maintained their poise. A couple of late goals brought the scores close again, but the bell sounded to finish South Melbourne season and allow Richmond to celebrate their first VFL final victory. Richmond, 10 goals 13-73, defeating South Melbourne, 9 goals 5-50. The reigning Premiers, who had been on top of the ladder with one round to go, had lost their last three games to end their season, while the Yellow and Blacks were still competing for their first Premiership. The second semi-final saw Collingwood take on rivals Carlton in front of an even bigger crowd of 47,000 people. Arthur Norden got the nod as umpire for the game, while Jack Elder was sent off to officiate up in Ballarat. A poll of captains from St Kilda, South Melbourne and Essendon in Friday Night's Herald had Collingwood as favourite to win. The Magpies had the wind in the first quarter and took full advantage to kick four goals while holding the Blues to just two points. When Carlton had the wind, they could only score two goals, but also allowed Collingwood to score two of their own. Collingwood dominated the third quarter, and it looked as if they were home and hose coming into the final quarter, with a lead of seven goals. But Carlton did excite their supporters in the last quarter, by kicking four quick goals, creating hopes of a win for the ages. But it was not to be. Collingwood increased their defensive pressure and held on for a comfortable win. They would take on Richmond for the Premiership. Collingwood were favoured by many to win the Premiership match against the newcomers, Richmond, and Collingwood's president, Jim Sharp, was even willing to put his prediction into poetry for the Friday Herald. Two fast teams, a springtime day. Who will win? Tis hard to say. The Magpies' record is well known, but Richmond's fame has also grown. So cheer them on, both teams are good. I tip to win. Bold Collingwood! Perhaps there should be more poetry provided by the club presidents in today's modern game. Collingwood had reason to be confident. They had beaten Richmond in both games this season. In fact, the last time the Yellow and Blacks had beaten the Magpies was in July 1916, over three years ago, although they did manage a draw in June 1917, as The Age reported. While the hope may have been with Richmond, the tipping was with Collingwood. 51,000 people crowded into the MCG to see a confident Richmond side as they continued their fine form from the first semi-final and started their final against Collingwood full of running. The opening may have been ragged, but even as the game settled down, Richmond maintained a superior style of play. Collingwood could not get their short passing game going, while Richmond were moving the ball quickly, dominating in the ruck and taking plenty of high marks. But Collingwood were not completely out of the game and kept close enough to keep the crowd on their toes. By three-quarter time, Richmond had a lead, 7 goals ten fifty-five, to Collingwood, 6 goals six forty-two. But the last quarter belonged to the Yellow and Blacks. After a couple of attempts by the Magpies, that resulted in one behind, the Tigers surged with three quick goals that gave them a well-deserved 29-point win. They had shown themselves as serious final contenders and forced the contest for the 1919 Premiership into a grand final. Collingwood supporters leaving the ground had but one phrase on their lips, wait until next week. Such is the benefit of the right of challenge by finishing the year on top of the ladder. Although Collingwood would have to make new travel arrangements, their end-of-season trip to the Gippsland Lakes had already been booked. So confident were the Magpie players. No word on whether they got their deposit back. Perhaps they should have consulted the record books. In the last 12 seasons, the the top-of-the-ladder team had been beaten in the semi-final or final game nine times, resulting in a grand final match to decide the Premiership, and an extra game contributing to the league's finances. The Grand Final was held on Saturday 11th of October, which was felt by some to be too much of an encroachment upon the cricket season. Jack Elder was appointed for his 8th Grand Final, overtaking Ivo Crapp, who had spent the latter part of his umpiring career in Perth before retiring after this 1919 season. Collingwood's coach was, of course, Jock McHale, who had not pulled the boots on this season after just one game in 1918, but he has not quite finished his playing career yet. This was the eighth year of coaching the Magpies and his fourth grand final in five years. Looking to make up for the disappointment of the loss to South Melbourne in 1918, he might have been frustrated at not having dealt with Richmond in the final game, but he had his plans to deal with them in the grand final. Collingwood's captain for 1919 was Con McCarthy, who had joined the club in 1915 and was known as a fitness fanatic with enormous physical strength. He started in defence but had moved into the ruck in 1916, where his large body and physical strength was an advantage in the shepherding contests that were common in ruck play at the time. He had taken the captaincy from Percy Wilson in 1919 and had had a strong season. In a surprise move, he would ask to be relieved of the Collingwood captaincy in 1920 and after another good season in 1921, the club and the football world were shocked when he moved to Footscray in the VFA to be captain coach for the extraordinary sum at the time of £400 for two seasons, becoming one of the first, but certainly not the last, Collingwood player to move for a bigger pay packet. But despite the accusations of selling out by some supporters, teammates and workmates described him as a strongly principled man, well respected and modest. Richmond's captain was Percy Mabry, who had tied with Clary Hall for the position of vice-captain at the start of the season and won the position on a coin toss. He had captain coached the team in 1917 and was familiar with the leadership role. In Round 9, Richmond's captain Bill Thomas badly broke his leg in a game against Carlton at Princess Park, ending his season and eventually his playing career. Percy then led the Tigers for the second half of the season after missing many early games with his own leg injury. He had joined Richmond in 1910, playing mainly as a half-forward planker cinnamon but eventually took on every position on the field other than Ruckman. He was a fast, creative player who could kick with both feet, This would be his final season at the Yellow and Blacks, before moving to a playing coach position, leading Footscray to a premiership in the VFA in 1920, and then winning another premiership with Frankston in 1922. And, after his football days were done, he served on the Richmond committee from 1927 to 1933. Coaching Richmond was former Carlton player Norman Hackenschmidt clark He'd coached Carlton to -to back-to-back premierships in 1914-15 and played in their hat-trick of premierships from 1906 to 1908, becoming the only person to be involved in the first five Blues premierships. He left Carlton after the 1918 season for what would turn out to be one season at Richmond and now he had them in the grand final. Richmond took an unchanged team into the grand final while Collingwood lost Tom Wraith whose father had died and Charles Lee, who was admitted. Into the team came Penn Reynolds and Ernie Wilson. The Herald now had Richmond as favourites, and, not surprisingly, the Richmond Guardian also went for their team with a cartoon showing a Tiger ready to pounce for the 1919 Premiership, although the Tiger symbol would not be officially adopted by the club until 1920. There was a curtain raiser with the Junior League, effectively the VFL reserves with some additional teams, opening affairs. Collingwood's junior team had also topped the ladder after the home and away season, but lost their final to University. In their grand final, the Magpie junior team reversed the result, beating University 6 goals 11 to 4 goals 8. Perhaps that was a good omen for the Magpies. 47,000 people were at the grand final. A little down on the previous week, but still an impressive crowd for these two popular teams. And this week, there seemed to be even more people on the roof of the grandstand for the bird's eye view. Richmond were keen to use the gymnasium change rooms as they had done the week earlier, but Collingwood won the toss for those rooms. Perhaps another good omen for the Magpies. Collingwood had the breeze in the first quarter, and within a minute, Dick Lee had two shots at goal, a place kick and a snap but neither got the desired result. George Bayliss scored the first goal of the day for Richmond, which got the crowd cheering for them. But a free kick awarded to Dick Lee right in front of goal gave Collingwood their first. As noted by Observer in the Arcus, the game was being played with more pace and energy than actual skill, and both teams were missing shots they might have got on other days. At quarter time, it was Collingwood with a narrow lead, one goal 5-11, to Richmond, one goal 2-8 points. It was Richmond's turn with the wind in the second quarter, but both teams had goals early on to tie the scores at two goals 5 each. Collingwood were playing the better game than Richmond, showing a much improved performance compared to the week before. Soon Dick Lee had scored another major for the Magpies. Then their ruckman, Les Hughes, took a strong mark, and widened the gap further with another goal. Richmond supporters began to worry that the game was getting away from them, but their forward pocket, Donald Don, yes, his real name, scored a much-needed fourth goal for the Yellow and Blacks. The half-time break saw Collingwood leading to 5 goals five thirty-five to Richmond 4 seven thirty-one. It was still anyone's game, but the Magpies seemed to be playing a calmer, more settled game. The third quarter is sometimes called the Premiership quarter, and in this game, perhaps we saw an early example. Richmond's hopes may have been raised when they saw Dick Lee come out of the change rooms at the start of the third quarter, limping his way around the forward line. But the Collingwood champion had played much of his career with damaged legs, and he knew how to score goals when needed. Donald Don, yes, his real name, could have picked up a second goal for the grand final with a simple shot close to goal, but it missed. And then the Magpies started building the pressure. Lee got their sixth goal, followed by goals to Walton and Toomey. When the bell rang out for the third quarter, Collingwood had command of the game on 8 goals eight fifty-six, to Richmond, 5 goals 10-40. The Magpie supporters in the ground were beginning to feel like premiers, The Richmond supporters were hoping for a miracle. But there was no miracle this year. Collingwood continued their process and Richmond became more frazzled. They were still applying effort and energy, but not in an efficient or effective manner. Some in the crowd started moving towards the gates and, as observers said, the tigers were caged and the magpies were flying high. Collingwood finished the game on 11 goals, 12, 79 to Richmond, 7, 11, 53. After a close first half, the Magpies had outscored Richmond, 6 goals, 7 to 3 goals, 4 to win their fifth premiership and Jock McHale's second as coach. There were a few issues to be addressed before the football year was finished. And what a successful year it was. The league had set records for financial returns and the number of people attending finals. After the trials of the war years, football was well and truly back. But the relationship with cricket authorities needed to be settled. This season had gone well into October, traditional cricket season time. There had been several meetings between the VFL and the Victorian Cricket Association. The management of all but two of the grounds was in the hands of cricket clubs. But it was the football season that contributed the revenue that allowed the cricket clubs to survive. The VFL wanted half a year for football and half for cricket. April to September for football, the remainder for cricket. Meanwhile, the Victorian Cricket Association had already confirmed that their season would continue to mid-April in 1920. One member of the VCA voiced their frustration with the VFL saying, quote, "'They'll want to alter the climate next and have the whole year for football.'" Which may be seen as a reasonable prediction of what the AFL has eventually achieved. Despite meetings, letters and newspaper articles, no agreement on the division of the year was achieved. This will, I'm sure, come up again in the years ahead. As well as attempting to divide the year between cricket and football, there was much discussion on the merits of admitting another club to raise the competition to 10 teams and avoid the buy. The VFA had a rule that barred clubs from taking part in forming any other association, which would leave the club and all their officials liable to punishment by the VFA if they were seen to apply to the league for admission. But nothing could stop a local council from approaching the VFL. It would just be a coincidence if there was a VFA club playing in that council's territory. But it was not just VFA clubs that were in the mix. Proposals were considered by Ballarat, Melbourne University, despite their poor performance before the war, and even a public service team, as well as Paran, North Melbourne, Footscray, Hawthorne and Brunswick. Two key challenges stood in the way of deciding which clubs should be admitted. Firstly, the league wanted any club that joined to have control of their ground from April through to September. But that was not something that most football clubs could influence. More importantly, any new club would mean a redrawing of the boundaries for the much disputed district scheme which had only been operating since 1916. Some VFL clubs wanted to do away with the district scheme altogether and return to the open slather environment of previous years that saw players selling themselves to the highest bidders, and, not surprisingly, seeing several clubs experience financial challenges. In the end, no decision on a new club or changes to the district scheme were made. The 1920 season would proceed with the same nine clubs and a buy each week. Join me next time to see how the 1920 season unfolds which clubs would move up or down the table. Could Melbourne achieve some wins with their more experienced, but still very young team? And which team selects the oldest player ever to take the field in a VFL-AFL game? If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or you want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au Or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History.